Hello, good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is Matthew 6, 9 through 13. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. All right. Awesome. So uh, I'm, I'm not going to go for like 45 minutes. Don't worry. I'm going to go like 30, maybe 25. But um, we have a lot to do. I'm going to talk about some of my favorite stuff that, um, that, I've, uh, that I've really ever learned. I learned some of this stuff about eight years ago or so, and it, it absolutely began to like change how I look at sort of everything in the scriptures and how the scriptures are built. So um, we've been going through the book of Matthew, and yes, we're, right now we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I'll do a little bit of review, and then today we're going to focus on verse 11 right here and open that one up, and the next week we have our baptism service. Um, um, it's it's going to be beautiful. I'm excited, and if you are signed up to be baptized, I'm going to send you some of you an email and just kind of let you know what to expect. Um, and uh, okay, so... I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer, and then we're going to do a little bit of review, and then we're going to jump into this, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place. Thank you for these people. Um, Help us to be present and hear. Help us to receive your peace and your quietness right now. Quiet our minds. Quiet our hearts. There are things that are calling for our attention everywhere. Push them aside. Help us to be here and, and to read these ancient words written by your followers Remind us that uh, they have meaning and purpose for us today the same way they did then. Um, give us first century eyes and uh, give us the ability to apply this in, this in this new, completely different world. Help us to see that um, we have a part to play, that your kingdom is coming, but your kingdom is here, um, and that we are a part of it. Speak through me. Uh, thank you for this place. In your name, amen. Okay, so the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, this is Jesus teaching the people, this is how you should pray. I know that because it says at the top, this then is how you should pray. Um, and then he, he goes into this big long thing that can be divided right in the middle, right above verse 11. So it's, it's separated into two sections, and in those two sections are um, two, uh, three parts each. So there's six, real, six parts to the, the Lord's Prayer. Um, and it flows, in the, in the original language it's... It's poetic. It's beautiful. It's much like one of the Psalms. Um, and there's a reason for that, and we're going to get to that later. Um, and so the first half of it, I want to work through this real fast. Um, the first half of it is about putting God in God's place. The second half is now that God's in God's place, um, what, what part do I play? And then we bring that to God, okay? So it starts off, a little review from last time, from two weeks ago, our Father in heaven. Um, the ancient world, there was this pantheon of gods. We are given a father. The pantheon of, God, of gods had to be pleased. Um, they were angry. You had to offer sacrifices. You had to spill some blood to make them satisfied and happy. Um, you had to appease them. You had to live up to some moral standard. We are not given that. We are given a father. You are the creation of the father. The father loves you. The father is not requiring anything of you um, other than to um, draw near to the father. When we, when we open our minds and our hearts in prayer, 
We are approaching a father. There's no, there's no shame and there's no guilt in that moment. Um, there is only a child and a father. Um, and then it moves into hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed, um, the word hagiosai, the center of it is this word hagios, which we translate as holy. Holy in the ancient world simply meant different, unique, set apart, um, different than everything else. Um, again, in the pantheon of gods in which the people lived in this time, there were many gods. Um, and the writer here is saying, um, this God is separate, different. You live amongst the pantheon of gods as well. Every day you have people telling you this is what you should be living for, this is what that should look like, this is how you should look, this is what you should wear, how you should clothe yourself. Um, we are given clothe yourself in righteousness, God's righteousness. It's different. Um, you, are, you are told um, you have to do these things and accomplish these things, and there's all these gods making a lot of demands of you. There is indeed a pantheon of gods making demands of you. In this moment, um, when we approach God in prayer, we're approaching the Father with no guilt, no shame, nothing to be done. And we're pushing aside all the other things demanding that we achieve and we do and we be. And we realize that there is one God who is holy. And that is all. And there is nothing else that matters. Um, and then we move from there into what's in, in Hebrew was called a parallelism. You have one line that says, your kingdom come. And then the next two lines are explaining what that looks like. Uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, a lot of us, when we approach prayer, tend to approach God and we say, God, here's what my kingdom, what I would like my kingdom to look like, and I'm asking that you, that my kingdom, my will would be done on earth, right? When we approach God in prayer, Jesus says, this is really how you should pray. There is, there is a God who is, who is far and above all these other gods that you have and that you are even creating in your heart. And... Um, we are aligning our, our wills to God's will. God's will be done on, this, on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and so in prayer, we're not asking God to change. We're asking God to change us. Our hearts are, are, are focused. We're putting God in God's place. And once God is in God's place in our life, then we approach it. At the center of the universe, of the whole thing, there is a conscious, loving being at the center of the whole thing. That is the idea. Something bigger than you or I or our collective selves. That is the one we are approaching. And so we lay our own deities and gods aside and we submit ourselves to, to the center of it all. God, on earth as it is in heaven. So now that God is in God's place, we enter into the second half which is us talking about our situation. Um, and this is the only time that this really um, is appropriate. Now that we understand the situation in full, now that we are in that mindset, let's bring ourselves to God. Um, and so it starts off in verse 11, give us today our daily bread. So today we're going to look at this one. Um, in two weeks, we're going to look at uh, probably the rest, hopefully, in one, one sermon, the rest of the passage. Um, who knows? I, I can't be in this for five years. Um, okay, so um, give us today our daily bread. Now, I, I'm going to, when you read this in the, in, the, in the Greek and you look at the history of this passage, there is some fascinating stuff. There's this word in the middle here. I'm going to show it to you how it looks like in a, in a, in a 
in a sort of a Greek manuscript thing. Um, when you, okay, so first off, this is fascinating. You know when people say, I read a literal translation. If you read a literal translation, this would read, our bread, the needed, give us today. Nobody does. We're trying to get to the meaning of like the phrase, okay? Um, when we get the meaning of the phrase, then we, we translate that. But there's a word here in the middle of it, epiusios, um, that the word, um, okay, so the word epiusios, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to leave it up there by itself. The word epiusios is this mysterious word that we've, really since, since Matthew wrote this, we haven't known what this word meant because we haven't found it anywhere else but here. Um, there was a lot of debate in the first couple centuries about like where this word came from, um, and Origen actually argued that, that Matthew made it up, Right? We all have friends that make up words sometimes, take two words, put them together, and they're like, that's what he's doing. Um, However, in 1998, 19 years ago, okay, 19 years ago, uh, we found, this blows my mind, I I don't know, maybe some of you, we find this ancient papyrus uh, from like the second century, and it's a shopping list that this lady dropped somewhere, and she used this word three times on the shopping list which gives us context to the word and how it was used, okay? Um, Because we're always just translating it by the words that are there, but the definition of a word isn't necessarily the definition. It's it's how it's used, right? So this word, epiusius, uh, I mean, it basically means um, super necessary, but it doesn't like, that's not helpful. So we find this shopping list, and on the shopping list, she uses it three times to describe... um, how she is going to the store to pick up the supplies of this very day, the things that she needs just today. Um, and when that is listed, that's how she uses the word, epiusius, right now. This is stuff I need immediately today. This stuff is not for tomorrow. Um, I can't pick it up tomorrow. I'm doing something later today, and I need this for today. That's what, the, that's what that means. So when we talk about Give us today our daily bread. By the way, so there's still work being done on the Bible. You can be a part of that. You can. We all have a part to play in this whole thing. Um, So I I, want to respect your minds and let you feel that you have possibly a part to play. You should be reading and studying, taking part in the conversation of the whole thing. We're we're a global community of people trying to understand these ancient words. So um, give us today our daily bread right now. What do we need right now? What, what are, uh, this is not later. This is not tomorrow. Um, this is exactly what we need right now. Um, today will have its own trials and struggles and difficulties and moments of beauty and things to celebrate. And we're asking the Father, um, who is separate, to, to give us that his will will be done in all of these situations. So in the good moments, the will of God would be done in these moments. We would celebrate with these people and lift them up and, and point to the reason for the joy that we have. In the bad moments, we are there offering love and peace, grace, reconciliation. When people say things that are difficult and heavy and offensive, when we hear things that are tragic and sad and difficult, um, the kingdom of God in these moments, today, Yes, tomorrow will have problems. Tomorrow will have its moments of beauty as well. The good news is tomorrow we can pray this prayer again. And we can talk to God again in the morning about these things. But today, 
This is for people with anxiety. This is for people who wake up in the middle of the night and say, my 401k is not going to be big enough in 30 years. Um, and I always have to, like, I try to talk to people, you know, 90% of the things that you're afraid are going to happen, 90% of them are never going to happen, and the 10% that will happen, there's nothing you can do but rely on God for how to respond to them. That's all. There's nothing else. Give us today our daily bread. Now, there is this thread of daily bread, the whole, the whole conversation of daily bread, Epiusius, this runs through all of scriptures from the very beginning. Um, and we're going to talk about some of these things. Um, so at the beginning of the genealogy, at the beginning of the book of Matthew, there's this long list of names that you skip when you read it, right? Um, it's called a genealogy. There's several of them in the Bible. These things have meaning in the Jewish context and in the Greek context, um, the one in Matthew, at the very beginning of it, we talked about this. Maybe you'll remember. If, if not, I'm going to refresh your memory. Um, there's what's called a grammatria at the beginning of the book of Matthew. This long list of names specifically crafted to give a message. It's the genealogy of Jesus. It goes back specifically to David for a reason. And then it goes all the way back to David. And from there, you can count in groups of sevens. It's separated. Um, and when you add it all up, you get three groups of 14 um, and in the Hebrew, when you're reading, when you're reading this in the ancient, the ancient Jewish mindset, you would read this and you would realize um, the letters of David's name. It's DVD. There's no vowels in Hebrew. DVD, 14. Matthew basically says David three times at the beginning of, of the book of Matthew. And then after he finishes saying in a grammatria David three times, which starts with David, he ends it with David by listing David's name specifically a couple more times. And then, throughout the book of Matthew, he's saying, Jesus, son of David, and he has Jesus talking about David and doing things David did. For instance, the, the, the Lord's Prayer is set up so that the people would, it's set up so it would flow like Psalm 23, which is a song written by David. Uh, Matthew is painting Jesus as the new David, the lowly shepherd who rises up, the new king of Israel except without all that other stuff that David did, right? Um, and throughout the Gospels, you will actually see references to Matthew, I mean, to, to David, and to the things that David did in his life. Psalm 23, the song that we sang earlier today, um, has this incredibly beautiful picture. Um, it's written by David, a shepherd, who became a king, and is always referring to life as a shepherd, because he refers to God as a shepherd. In the Old Testament, um, to refer to God as a shepherd is exactly the same as referring in the New Testament to, to God as the father and the king um, because the shepherd rules the sheep, the king. It's all the same stuff. Um, so when you read, you get to this passage, Psalm 23, you're going to read this. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will... There's an A, a straggling, wandering A. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So there's, this is all shepherd stuff. There's a, a rod and a staff. These are weaponry that a, that a shepherd would carry to, to defend the sheep against wild animals and robbers. And, um, and then you have... Um, you have them lying down in green pastures and still waters, refreshes my soul, being fed, protected, all of that. So we're going to talk about this for a minute because there's a lot of like subversive stuff going on here that you might not know about because I, I may be wrong, but I don't think any of you are shepherds. Um, and so I think we're separated from the context of this and what this means. And then we're going to go back to our today's passage. All right. So 
Normally, I mean, if you were to run a Google search for, um, he makes me lie down in green pastures, you're going to get something like this. It's something that like your parents would post to Facebook. Um, it's even got like bad, like blur on top and the bottom. It's bad. Um, and, and so you, when you zoom in, okay, so let's look at these sheep. That made me dizzy a little bit. So these sheep are not going anywhere. They've got everything, everything that they need. Um, we are Americans. We love this picture. We love the idea of God gives me everything I need. I'm fat and happy. I've got everything. I'm just going to hang out here. I'm going to eat some grass, drink some water, and roll around. This is what I'm going to (laughs) do. These sheep are taken care of. And this is what we think of when we think, he leaves me besides green pastures. However, David, shepherd David, lived in the Negev. It looks like this. There are no green pastures in the Negev. Okay? This is important. Um, because the, the green pastures are not at all the way that we would think they are today. They would have never seen a site like I just showed you. This is what they're used to. And shepherds lead their sheep through this stuff. I might call it like a valley of like maybe a shadow of death, right? <laughs> um, scary phrasing. Um, So here's a modern day, actual today, shepherd lady leading her sheep through there. Look, their heads are down and they're eating. What are they eating? (laughs) So that's a great question. I'm glad you asked. They're eating these small little shoots of of greenish grass that that pop up in the morning. Um, And because the dew settles on the ground. And it's kind of like if you ever see, if you ever, if I grew up in um, Los Angeles, we used to always pass through the desert. Certain times of the year, the cactus are skinny. Other times of the year, they're fat because any rain that falls gets sucked up into the cactus and they expand. That's why they have those ridges. Okay. Floridians are like, whoa. Um, <laughs> and they get fat, right? So the same happens with, same thing happens with these little shoots of grass. Um, the dew falls and overnight, these little pieces of green grass puff up and they, the sheep eat them and they get a little bit of water, a little bit of grass. However, around 10, 11 o'clock in the morning, um, a hot wind, southeast wind, blows through, and it's really hot, and it's dangerous. And this is a time when the, the, she- the shepherd is going to lead the sheep to a safer place, um, out of the way of the wind, probably a place that is still under some shade, and, and they're going to try to eat some of that stuff there. Um, this wind dries up and destroys the grass and the flowers that grow on this grass, the things that the, she- that the sheep eat, instantly. Um, it's basically like oven, opening an oven door and getting blasted with the heat, okay? Um, and this is mentioned over and over and over again in scriptures. Uh, I'm going to show you a few of these passages because the writers of scripture use this idea to paint all kinds of pictures, usually having to do with faith in God. Same thing, Paul's ta- uh, same thing that, that David's talking about, same thing Jesus is talking about. James 1.10, the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away, even while they go about their business. So he's using this idea to make a point about trusting in earthly things. He's one of the pantheon of gods, riches, right? Um, And he describes the grass and the flower. In the morning, the wind blows over, and it withers and dies. Um, let's go to... Oh, okay, so scorching heat. Hold on. Um, scorching heat is this Greek word, kauson. Sometimes it's called a simoon. Um, these are words that are still used in modern-day Palestine to describe the southeast wind. 
coming through. Um, so Isaiah 40, it says, All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Okay, so um, that's a direct reference to what we're talking about. Um, oftentimes the wind would be referred to as the breath of the Lord because the, the word for spirit in the Hebrew and the word for wind is the same word. The word for breath is the same word. Um, so oftentimes when the wind would blow, they would, they would imagine the spirit of God there moving and they would, they would talk to God. It would cause them to pray. Um, and that sometimes, often, it was probably very literal the way they thought about the spirit of God moving. And they saw the spirit of God moving in and destroying all the grass. Okay? Um, it's surely, uh, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So you could, that picture in your mind, you could just ponder on that verse. It's talking about life and death and God's hand and all of it and God's will and all of it. There's a lot to ponder there and maybe, maybe meditate on this week at some point. Next passage, um, Psalm 103. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. It's all the same. There's a moment when the, when the wind blows like, a, like hot air out of an oven and just destroys all of the food there. But there's a shepherd. Um, and the shepherd is well-educated. He's confident. He's competent. And he knows where to lead you to the next place to find food. The shepherd is never going to lead the sheep somewhere and just let them sit there all day. They will be dead by afternoon. He will keep moving. And the sheep... You know, the scriptures say word, phrases like, uh, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. They know me and they follow me. And so the sheep is always listening for the voice of the shepherd and following that shepherd everywhere that shepherd is leading. So there is this constant movement. Jesus regularly is refers to himself as the good shepherd. Scriptures refer to him as a good shepherd. Paul does a couple of times. And, and, and Jesus uses this language a lot. And then Jesus says, follow me. Because Jesus is moving, and we must move with Jesus. We must follow. Um, this passage, so when we, when we get to today's passage and we say, give us today our daily bread, this is the idea, and this is all through scriptures. Think of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. What are they eating? Every day, there's this manna that they say falls from heaven, and as the story goes, they collect the manna, and they put it in these baskets, but they're not allowed to collect any more than just today's. Why? Because if they did, um, it miraculously full of maggots, and, and it's deteriorated and disgusting. It rots. And so the story is told that like this whole thing is set up to every day make you rely upon God. Because if you're giving it everything, if you're given everything at once, you will forget about God. Um, this is the exact message that God gave to the people before leading them into Canaan. You will have houses you didn't build and wells you didn't dig, and vineyards you didn't plant, and you will forget about me. And so every day they wake up and they gather their daily bread. Manna, by the way, the literal translation of manna means "what is it?" That's what that means. Fascinating. Okay, um, give us today. Our daily bread. That's what this is. Um, the idea here is that we can trust the shepherd. Um, the shepherd knows what we need when we need it. The sheep don't know where to go. That's why they have a shepherd. They don't, they don't need to know where to go. They just need to be obedient and follow the shepherd's voice. 
Now, this idea of the shepherd, like I said, um, and the connection to David the shepherd and Jesus as shepherd is all through the Gospels. Um, And if you understand the ancient context and all the things that are connected to shepherding in the first century, you're going to see it everywhere. There's this, uh, there's this theologian, um, Gary Burge, and he, he's written tons of books on, on the ancient context. Um, and he wrote one that I read a few years back all about shepherding. And ever since that, I've seen these references all through Scripture. For instance, he talked about how um, in the ancient world, there's um, villages would have, you know, different families have a different amount of sheep, and they would find if they found a competent shepherd who was able to um, wield a, like a sling to protect the sheep and, and a bow and, and, and a staff and knew where to lead the sheep and could keep the sheep alive, he would be entrusted with more and more of the, of the sheep of the village. Um, and the sheep of the village would be clustered into a group of 50 or less, never more than 50. 50 was the max that one, they considered 50 the max that one shepherd could watch. If there was more than 50, if someone brought in more than that, they would bring in another shepherd and they would combine these together and they'd have two shepherds, one on each side. So, for instance, there's this uh, parable in, uh, I wrote it down here, Luke, oh, Luke 15. There's this parable of Jesus um, that Jesus tells of a shepherd who has 100 sheep, right? Um, in which case, there'd be two shepherds. And the shepherd loses one. They get back, they count, one is missing. And he goes off to find it, and he leaves the sheep, or probably in a sheep pen with the other shepherd, because it would be wildly irresponsible to just let sheep wander through the desert on their own. Um, And so when you see this, you start seeing all the cultural references that the early readers of the Bible would have easily seen. And I wanted to say all that to bring you to a specific passage in the scriptures that directly deals with this. There's this passage in the book of Mark. Um, It's the feeding of the 5,000. And, you know, we're children of the Enlightenment. We're scientific-minded. And so when we talk about scriptures and we teach Jesus, we like to talk about the miracles. It's the big thing for us that, that we, you know... Miracles, he's divine, he's powerful. In the ancient world, this was nothing special. The miracles, they were, they were all kinds of people that did that. If you read the scriptures, you'll see it. Um, but the story itself of Jesus feeding the 5,000, where we are focused on the miracle, um, the early readers are seeing something wildly different than what you're seeing. That has everything to do with shepherding. And I'm going to work you through it real fast. And it starts off like this in Mark 6. It says, when Jesus landed, he's on a boat. He wasn't flying. When he, when he landed... He saw a large crowd, and he had compassion on them. It says, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he sees these people. This is the start. This is the start of the story. This line sets the tone for everything else we're going to read in here. So when you read this, you're thinking, so Jesus sees a bunch of sheep without a shepherd. Jesus always says he's the good shepherd. And so I think you're about to see some shepherding stuff. Okay. And it moves in. It says, by this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. I'm cutting out a lot of stuff for brevity. Read it on your own. Um, by this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, they said. Okay, so now we have uh, a plot in the story of the shepherd. It's a remote place. So they're not in the city. They're in the wilderness. There's a shepherd and there's sheep in the wilderness. Setting the scene, very normal for a shepherd. And he says, how many loaves do you have? Because people are getting hungry. Um, he asked, go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fishes. Very, very little food. It's very little. Hardly anything there, right? And so this is the part where he's going to sit everybody down. He's just going to do a miracle, and that's the big focus. In the ancient mindset, this was not the focus. The focus is right here. Then Jesus directed them all 
uh, Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Everything about this entire passage in the mind of the first century reader, when they're reading it, they're not reading a story about a guy um, feeding a bunch of people miraculously. They're reading about a shepherd um, who is incredibly competent and should be followed. They're reading this incredibly miraculous story about a shepherd who knows where to find food where there is none, who knows how to protect them, who knows exactly what he's doing because he's hitting all the little cultural references that has to do with shepherding. and All the ancient people would read this and they would fully understand exactly what's happening here. Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the competent shepherd. And so the people might be thinking, yes, I, you know, I hear the teachings of Jesus, but some of the things he says, things about loving your enemies and turning the other cheek and stuff, that stuff's incredibly difficult. Um, and when you tell people this, you say, the scriptures say this to other Christians. And what Christians do is, um, we say, but what if? And then we finish that with different scenarios. It's a normal thing to do. But what if this happens? What if someone breaks into your house? What if someone's attacking your family? What if this? What if this? What if this? What if this? Um, so we're basically putting our gods up against Jesus. Um, the scriptures were meant to convey Jesus is the shepherd. He knows things you don't know. He's competent. He's not stupid. He has a plan. You have no idea what is coming. Follow Jesus. Allegiance. The word faith, pistis, is is a verb. It really means faithfulness. It means allegiance. Allegiance to Christ. The teachings of Jesus are 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 the right direction, the right way. They are how a follower of Christ and everyone in the world should live because Jesus was right. And he's hallowed. He's different from any other voice you're going to hear. And they say, yeah, I, and, I, and I read what Jesus said about, about being generous and giving when people ask, but what if they do this? What if somebody takes advantage and, and does this? Or what if I lose this? You have a shepherd who is competent, who knows where to get what you need when you need it. I know you think that you know where to go, but if the shepherd were to just leave you alone, you would absolutely destroy yourself. And that's what happens to sheep. They're pretty stupid. They walk off cliffs all the time. It happens. You have a shepherd. You have somebody that is just simply there saying like, no, you're, just follow. It's not complicated. Christianity was never meant to be this really difficult, complicated thing. It's relatively simple. By faith are you saved. Jesus is Lord. Faithfulness, allegiance. This is how the kingdom of God is entered into and followed. And it's how it's brought into this world. And all of this, this whole daily bread thing, give us today our daily bread. This whole thing is also, it flies in the face of everything we tend to stand for, which is really excess. We are a country who craves excess because we think, we think perfection. And we are trained from when we were kids. What are you going to do with your life? What do, you, what do you want your future to look like? You know, we ask all these questions, and it's all about attaining, building, receiving, and we think perfection in our lives will come by attaining and getting all of these things 
And that's how perfection will come. The ancient fathers and mothers of Christianity have always known perfection is not found by getting perfection. Um, Perfection is pursued by cutting out, by throwing away, by removing. Just violently cutting these things out of your life which are holding you back. And you see this all through the writings of the ancient Christians, and we seem to have forgotten all this. We want to, we want to make sure that everything is set up and everything is, we want to know how everything ends. We, have, we, think we, we think we can know with certainty everything. At what point do we have faith and practice faithfulness and allegiance? At what point? Um, certainty? Like, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Certainty is the opposite of faith. That's a fact. And so you have these ancient church fathers. For instance, we have um, William of, of, of Oakham, um, who was this, he was in the, in the 13th century, he was this uh, English Franciscan friar. He's a theologian, um, also an incredibly deep philosopher. Um, you ever heard of Oakham's razor? That's this guy. Um, and he says, it is vain to do with more what can be done with less. This was his whole theory on life. Like, people are clouding everything that you're trying to do. It's less, not more. And then you have modern-day people saying the same thing, very respected pastors and theologians like Timothy Keller, who says, whatever it is that you do not have is not necessary for you to become who God wants you to be. And whatever you do have is necessary for you to become who God wants you to be. That's good and that's bad. Everything beautiful, everything difficult and hard is part of who God intends for you to be. Give us our daily bread. That's the request of like, hey, what I'm going to face today, I don't know about tomorrow, it's going to have its own problems. Jesus literally says that a little later. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. Give us today our daily bread is this request for whatever I'm going to go through today, help my allegiance and my faith to be in Jesus. Help, help me to bring in that moment the kingdom of God into this place. Not to escape it, to engage it. Paul with everything that Paul went through, Paul had everything. Paul had everything taken from him. Um, Paul lost everything. He was in prison. He was beaten. Um, he lived this wild life. And in, he writes this letter to the, the Philippians, uh, to the church in Philippi. Um, and he says something incredibly simple. He says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Plain and simple. I don't know what you're going through. I know some people in this room are going through incredibly difficult things. Um, there's loss. There's family illness. In, in my family, it's the same way. There's, there's pain happening. Um... There's fear about what's coming. In this moment, today is really all there is. Yesterday doesn't exist anymore. Tomorrow doesn't exist yet. Here we are today, um, and we gather, and we focus on higher things, and we put God in God's place today, just today. And for the time you're in prayer, you put God in God's place. You declare you're different than everything else that I can ask for help from. Um, I want your will, not mine. And then you offer it up. What do I need today? Help me to be who I'm supposed to be in your kingdom today. One step at a time, and we walk the path, and together as a community, we crawl towards Jesus every single day. 
And so right now we're going to take communion. This is a picture of how this whole thing works. The, the, the shepherd himself pouring out his life. Uh, there's bread. It symbolizes the body of Christ. There's wine symbolizes the blood of Christ broken and spilled, poured out for you and I so that we could find salvation. Um, this is a declaration that this is how healing comes into the world. Jesus is Lord. This is the whole declaration of the whole thing. Um, so we're going to take some time. Take a few minutes and practice the Lord's Prayer in your mind. Work your way through the steps that Jesus laid out for you. Um, practice this as a discipline. Practice it every day as a discipline. We'll keep looking at it. We'll keep studying it and pulling more out of it. Um, but our communion servers are going to gather the elements and spread around the room. Whenever you are ready, join us for communion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide us. Grant us mercy and grace and humility. Give us today exactly what we need to address the things in our life right now that need to be addressed. In moments of beauty, turn our eyes towards you in thankfulness. In moments of fear and anguish and pain, in harsh words when they're leveled at us, I ask that you would help us to establish your kingdom in that moment, however it looks. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus. Thank you.